Welcome to the Cross-Cultural Psych Podcast with Professor Paul Youngman Kim. This podcast features conversations on the intersection of psychology, culture, and faith with renowned scholars in psychology and related fields. And now, here is Dr. Paul Youngman Kim. So today, I have Dr. Michelle Ami Reyes here, who is a certified cultural intelligence coach who has trained over 500 leaders over 10 plus years in cultivating inclusive, thriving workplaces with proven strategies and systems. She's the founder of Success Culture Coaching and is passionate about helping leaders navigate cross-cultural dynamics and thrive in diverse work contexts. She's also the award-winning author of the book, Becoming All Things, a seasoned expert with a PhD in cross-cultural work and the co-founder of two multicultural nonprofits. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, USA Today, NBCnews.com, and Good Morning America. That's really impressive. And um, so welcome, Michelle. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Just honored to be here and excited to talk with you today. So excited to have you. And the first question, as I read in the bio, is that you're wearing so many hats these days. And when I follow you on, follow you on social media, there's so many exciting things going on. And uh, especially when it comes to training others in cross-cultural competence. I know that that's a passion of yours. Could you elaborate a little bit more on what you're up to these days? Yeah, absolutely. Well, maybe this is, this is it's side work, but it's good mm. and holy work. First of all, I'm a homeschool mom. Mm. Uh, I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old. And so it's it's fun because conversations on cultural intelligence are just part of our everyday life. And so it's kind of fun. My son, who's eight, he's at the point now where we're, out in public and he's like okay what how can I be culturally intelligent right mm. now and it's it's really cool that he's asking that and I'm mm-hmm. able to have those conversations with him just in the grocery store or on wow. the way to church or whatnot so that's really special but mm. in my professional work as a certified cultural intelligence coach you know I have the the joy of working with pastors with Christians in the for-profit world for missionaries and what I what I love is that the, the work that I do with cultural intelligence, which is really just training on how to enhance your cross-cultural competencies, capabilities to just effectively navigate with people who are different from you. This can be used in so many ways. It can be used for leadership development. It can be used to train a staff or a board to really just better understand how they can all work together to accomplish their mission and values. It can be used as evaluation tools for missionaries being sent out or for church planters. So uh, it's really just given me the opportunity to work with a wide range of people and to really help folks uh, on the ground level hone in their goals, better understand what they're really good at. Mm -hmm. And I love that. I love to be able to affirm people and say, this is this is who you are. This is how God made you. This is this is your strengths. Lean into that. Here's areas of growth. And then really just be able to customize development plans for them to feel like they can really thrive where they work. So I'm I'm absolutely loving it. It's a it's a joy to be in this lane. Wow. Well, yeah, I think you're really impressing me with your sort of work that is directly impacting people in their lives, right? So my next question is about how you're such an inspiration to those of us who dream about doing work that's outside of academia, right? And you're doing that. And I'm curious, like what that's like for you. Like, how did you end up choosing this path that is what I would describe as non-traditional for 
someone who has a PhD, right? Someone who has pursued opportunities outside of the academic setting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it's funny because when I was in grad school and I did my PhD at the University of Illinois at Chicago, but there was a lot of talk about versatile PhDs and, mm. you know, you know how you can use your skills and knowledge that you're gaining your doctoral work for non-academic jobs. And, you know, I attended the seminars, I, I you know, I went to the workshops, but I never thought that would be me. Mm. Uh, I thought I was going to have a profession in the academy for 30 plus years. That was mm. That's, that was my dream. But then in, in 2017, while working as an associate professor at a local liberal arts university here, right outside of Austin, Texas, where we mm-hmm. where we live, uh, the, the humanities program went through a series of budget cuts, and I was not tenure tracked at the time. And so mm-hmm. I got that heavy phone call from my department head saying, you know, your position has been terminated because... Funds have been reallocated to the math and science programs. Mm. And, you know, my job just kind of disappeared overnight during the Christmas break of 2017. Mm. And it was devastating at first. You know, I was pregnant at the time with my Mm. second. And then I found myself, you know, jobless. And my husband and I were early church planters at the Mm. time. We had just planted a church, a multicultural church a few years prior. So I couldn't apply for other jobs in in different cities, let alone states, Mm. (laughs) right? Uh, We were tied to Austin, Texas, and no one was hiring. So it was a difficult time. And I really had to come to terms with, okay, well, what do I do now? Mm. You know, I have these skill sets and these passions, Mm. but I'm I'm located in this city. So, you know, what do I do? And so I began shifting my work 2018 onward into more of that evangelical reflective space Mm -hmm. uh, since I was already doing work alongside my husband in the church planting context. And so I started taking what I had learned and had been teaching in terms of cross-cultural dynamics within uh, my my PhD program, you know, and, and I had focused on cultural identity development from a global perspective and really looking at border crossings and how people form cultural identities based off of memory and storytelling and when they're speaking, you know, second languages and things like that, and really trying to bring that intellectual and spiritual discourse together and 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 sort of the gospel-driven work that we do as Christians in the church space, and right. so it was a hard transition at first because mm-hmm. I was trained as an academic and I know how to write academic articles <laughs> and mm-hmm. do academic <laughs> research, and yeah. all of a sudden I was trying to write in the Christian living space, mm-hmm. and that's a very different style of writing. So it took time to adapt, and just how to present myself and how to bring together research but in a more like practical application, practical living type way. But I would say it's been totally worth it. You know, since Mm -hmm. 2021, I've published two books related Mm -hmm. to culture and race for the sort of Christian reflective audience. And, you know, now bringing that same intersection of spiritual intellectual into my coaching. So I think Mm -hmm. all that to say, if someone is listening to this and finds themselves in a similar versatile PhD situation, one, encouragement that there's life on the other side, you know, and I think without a doubt, the abilities to critically think, to write Mm -hmm. and to research, those will open so many doors for you. That has just given me a leg up. I remember my first writing gig, the the editor I was talking to, she's like, wow, you know how to write. (laughs) And I was like, yes, seven (laughs) years of grad school prepared me for that. So the skills you're learning now, you if you step out of the academic space, can be used in so many incredible ways. 
I love that terminology, versatile degree, right? That we yes. typically are not trained to think that way. We are trained to think that there is a one path for PhDs, but I think to be able to think about all the possibilities because we have those critical thinking skills and the writing skills, I think would be really important. So I really appreciate you highlighting that. Yeah. Uh, if I could quickly follow up, you mentioned writing being different when you're doing more public facing writing. And obviously you're masterful in doing so, right? And reading your books and also the articles that you put out. But did you receive any kind of additional mentoring or coaching to be able to write for more of a public audience? Or was that something that you just figured out on your own as you're writing? Yeah. 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 Well, <laughs> I just did a lot of research. You know, one of my favorite lines from I promise this relates but one of my favorite mm. lines from The Martian that movie with Matt Damon yes. where he's like stuck on Mars uh -huh. and he's like I don't know how to like survive but I, you know I'm gonna research this and I'm gonna figure it out or it's, <laughs> it's something like that and I was like yes people with PhDs can research it and figure it out and so mm -hmm. you know that's what I did is I kind mm. of just thought through what new professional trajectory I wanted to have Mm -hmm. I started studying and researching the people who were in that field mm -hmm. already, you know, mm -hmm. other in particular, female speakers, writers, mm -hmm. teachers, and I started researching their resumes, I started kind of thinking through, okay, where have you written? And what right. did you write and reading their pieces, and then beginning to practice writing in that vein, reading what they were reading. And it was kind of a slow you know, transformative process, if you will. But I, you know, it, there was clear intentional work to mm -hmm. think through which waters do I want to be in and how do right. I adapt myself to, to succeed in those, in those waters. So I didn't have like a mentor or a coach or anything like that, mm -hmm. but that's, that was an example where research served me really well. Yeah. Something that you know how to do well, right. As yes. a PhD, right. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think you use the word, but intentionality is still important that even though you didn't have that one person tutoring you or mentoring you, right, you were intentional in doing the research and seeing templates that are, that are out there, examples that are out there. And so exactly. in the past, uh, other guests have talked about similar intentionality where it didn't just passively happen where they transitioned to more public facing writing, but rather like one guest talked about having a colleague just critique their work all over the place <laughs> and how that was in some sense, you know, hurting their pride because they're established scholars in their disciplines. But on the other hand, they were able to see how that was necessary for them to grow in this more, in this writing for a more wider audience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I recognized in, in jumping from academic to non-academic spaces, I was starting from ground zero again, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like I wasn't an established name or voice at that time. And so when I was getting editorial feedback, mm -hmm. hey, you know, we'd preferred if you take your article in this direction or, hey, we can you cut that whole section out and say this instead? And yeah, it's like, it's like, no, no, this is what people need to hear. Right. <laughs> I put a lot of thought into this, but kind of just recognizing, no, no, I need kind of like being back in grad school. Like I need to pay mm -hmm. my dues. I need to work with these editors, write in a way that will serve their audience best as they're telling me it will. And over time, then be able to eventually have more freedom to write the way I'd like to. But yeah, you can't really be picky, particularly when you're starting out. You know, you, you need to be able to cast the net wide and work with the editors and, and, and their feedback, you know, receiving that constructive feedback. 
-hmm. Yeah, really good insights. And you, I mean, you described it, but this attitude of humility is so important, right? Where, I mean, we'll talk about humility in other contexts, like cross-cultural contexts, but even when it comes to relearning something, that humble posture is super important in being able to be receptive to feedback, right? Yes, 100%. Yeah. So you mentioned your book. I have your book here, right? Um, Just a great read. Uh, Our listeners, if you haven't read it, I encourage you to pick it out. I'm going to read a quote from the book because I thought that was, I think, a central part of your argument. And it's from page 152. So I'm now reading. In 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul writes, To the weak I became the weak, to win the weak. What Paul is saying here is revolutionary. He is telling us that when it be- when it comes to caring for the weak, i.e. the poor and oppressed in our society, we need to become them. Can you say about a bit more about this posture of becoming? What does it mean to become someone, especially as a person who is not from that culture? Yeah, for sure. There's a term I use in my book about being a cultural chameleon. Mm -hmm. And I talk a lot about just in my own life as an Indian American growing up, feeling like a cultural chameleon, if you will. And so I like to equate this biblical concept of becoming all things to all people as akin to becoming a cultural chameleon. And what I mean by that is that Becoming all things, and I think I explained this in my book as well, it's it's this posture, but it's also this capacity <laughs> to see the world through other people's eyes and to value what they value and really to honor and care for their way of life. And so, especially when it comes to becoming like the weak, the oppressed, the vulnerable in society, uh, like you said, this is going to require a healthy dose of humility and flexibility because we have to challenge ourselves to not just insert our own experience or Mm. or our own background to say, well, this was my struggle. Here's how I got out of my struggle. Therefore, they should be able to get out of their struggle in the exact same way. And I think that's oftentimes that very reductive thinking is what prevents us from extending care Mm. because we're, we're, we're seeing people through our own lens. And so we really need to be able to get out of our comfort zone and do things that we might not ordinarily do, build relationships with people that we might not ordinarily, you know, be in friendship circles with. And I think an example of that is just our our church in in Austin, Texas. We're a primarily immigrant church. We're fully bilingual English and Spanish. And God has just opened up doors for us this year and last to host a lot of immigrant families in our home. And that was unexpected. Something at first that I wasn't sure how to feel about. We support a lot of missionaries at the border and it just kind of developed over time that as they were helping immigrants work through their paperwork, you know, legally cross the border, that they'd enter into this country and they'd know nobody, Mm. like zero contacts, no sponsors, nothing. And so what our missionary friends started doing is putting them on a bus to Austin Mm. (laughs) and we would go pick them up. And all of a sudden our home became this way station for immigrants to get on their feet, get Mm. a job. Um, start making money, all that kind of stuff. And so I remember the first time it happened, it was a whirlwind. It was like Mm. Good Friday. Our missionary friends had just texted us like an hour before, like, hey, by the way, I just put some people on the bus and they're coming to your house. And I remember just turning to my husband, Aaron, and thinking like, is this even a good idea? Like, 
I I've, I have no picture of these people. I don't know mm. what they look like. I don't even know what their names are. Right. Can we trust them? You know, mm. is this going to be safe? How long are they going to stay with us? Am I cooking for them? Like mm. none of those questions were and like we we just didn't know. And mm. we're inviting these strangers into our house. And you know, a lot of those fears were just quickly assuaged. All of the families that have stayed with us have just been wonderful people, many of whom have been Christians themselves who have taken care of us, who have loved on our kids, who have cooked for our family. Mm. And now like this past seven or eight months, we've hosted immigrants from Russia, Colombia, Spain, wow. Venezuela. We have a Venezuelan family living with us right now. Mm. And, and, you know, to me, this is what God has called our family to right now in terms of caring for the vulnerable, learning to mm. become like the vulnerable. But that first step, I think, really is just a willingness to put ourselves in the path of mm. the poor and the vulnerable, to build relationships and then begin to see life through their eyes. So in no way am I saying that other people need to be doing what I'm doing or that mm. our family is doing. But I think the question that we all have to ask ourselves is what relationships are we building right now with the poor and the vulnerable, you know, whose, whose paths are we putting ourselves in mm -hmm. so that we can really be able to meet the poor and the vulnerable and care for them for the sake of the gospel. Yeah. I'm thinking about that image of like that phrase that you're using that conjures up the image of putting ourselves in someone's path, right? Cause we sometimes think that that is like interrupting someone or like getting in the way of someone, but actually that image is more about, being intentional about connecting with others, right? Being relational. And yeah. the other powerful thing that you said was welcoming the stranger into our homes. And gosh, what a powerful way that you're doing that. So really appreciated what you shared of what it means to have a posture of becoming. Um, Amen. Amen. Yeah. My uh, one thing that I am grateful for, it's kind of a side a side note, if you will, yeah. but just the fact that we are now raising kids age yeah. eight and age five, who they spend the majority of their day around people that don't speak English, you know? And so mm -hmm. that is so normal for them. There is mm. no like bias <laughs> for them to be like, why don't you speak English? And in right. fact, it's taught in terms of like this posture becoming, mm. it's taught them just because of experience and proximity to immigrants that they need to learn the other person's language and and mm. be able to connect with them, you know, where they're at, as opposed to expecting them like, hey, why don't you learn English and right. and and talk to me? And so, you know, those sorts of postures, that's that type of cultural flexibility. There's only so much you can learn by reading a book. <laughs> right. The rest really gets worked out in practical relationships. And that's why that's why that's so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you've described that your work is within the church, but also outside of the church with other believers. And I'm just curious to hear from you as to what it's been like to do this kind of cross-cultural work in the Christian setting. And what are some of the rewards and challenges that might come up in doing this kind of work in Christian communities? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting because I think there's there's a pattern of conversations that I'm noticing happening, mm. whether the person is white, black, brown, or mixed, you know, whether the person is a pastor or a director, there's a lot of anxiety around what 
people as individuals bring to the table, the value of their voice, what they're able to contribute in cross-cultural spaces. And so a lot of a lot of the sort of foundational work that I do with people is really just affirming who they are, mm-hmm. <laughs> affirming their God-given cultural identities. And I think that's why, to an extent, I'm not like most of the folks that you're going to find in DEI spaces, and including Christian DEI spaces. And that's because I draw very hard lines mm-hmm. in the sand uh, on, on what are gracious and non-gracious forms of uh, communication and, and sort of rules of engagement, if you will. And, and, and so I tell the people that I work with, or sometimes I post on social media, like, you're never going to hear from me a call to shame somebody or to Mm. bully somebody or to just outright dismiss or try to cancel somebody simply Mm. because they hold a different viewpoint Mm. from you. Uh, And and the reason I draw that hard line, you know, it does come back to my faith and it does come back to this idea in Ephesians 429 about not letting any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, uh, Mm. but only that which is edifying and grace to those who hear you. And, And there's other passages of scripture that talk about having your words seasoned with grace and, and and so on. And so I truly believe, particularly as leaders, you cannot be in the business of cross-cultural work and, mm. and, and racial engagement simply to burn people or certainly to burn everything down. You know, mm. like we have to think in terms of legacy, you know, mm. what are we building up? How are we improving the lives of the people around us? How are we seeking the common good? in our personal and professional lives. So, you know, on the one hand, (laughs) that message has gotten even, you know, myself canceled from certain folks and that's okay. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't actually care about that, but what I do care about to your question about what is rewarding in this work is, is seeing people feel equipped and empowered to really do the holy work of DEI, Mm -hmm. working towards inclusivity, belonging, cultural intelligence, and to do it first and foremost, or primarily leading with the love of God and love of others, you know, and that means that their approach is going to look very different from what we see in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's a good and beautiful thing. And so I have people reach out every single week, whether it's via email or DMs, just thanking me for being Mm -hmm. gracious, for being thoughtful, for being nuanced. And not only are they happier human beings Mm -hmm. (laughs) for taking this posture, uh, Mm -hmm. but they they also are seeing that they're able to have a greater, more positive impact. And that's really, that, that, that's what really gets me excited. I love the fact that you are first and foremost starting out with a gospel-centered perspective, right? Focused on love of God and love of people and, and then allowing that to lead to gracious conversation. So like you said, that's in some sense, not the typical DEI work that we see in our world today, where conversation is often very much about taking sides. And yeah. so, yeah, I'm, I'm appreciating that sort of countercultural aspect of what you're proposing and what you're doing. Amen. Amen. The minute that you can no longer have a conversation with somebody you disagree with, any possibility for productive conversation, <laughs> any any possibility for forward moving progress goes out mm-hmm. the window. And I think we need to remember that, yeah. that it's not about, you know, getting into these echo chambers <laughs> mm-hmm. and silencing everyone that we that we don't like. You know, I, I talk to people all the time. They're like, well, I know what not to do. You know, they have this mm-hmm. long list of like, well, don't say this, don't do this. Like, here's all the things that's going to get yeah. me upset. Mm-hmm. But that the 
counter list of like, here's what to do. Here's how mm-hmm. we're investing and giving of ourselves and building. That's a very, you know, scarce list. And, and we mm-hmm. need to, we need to flip the script a bit on, mm. on what we're doing and why. Good point. Yeah. Have you ever had people question the validity of cross-cultural or DEI work from a Christian perspective? Meaning, <laughs> Like I've had those reactions too, where yes. people have commented like on an article, well, DEI work is incompatible with Christian faith, right? Yes. And, you know, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there, but have you ever yes. had that experience? And oh. how do you respond to folks who say 100%, that? 100%, yeah. right? And and I think we all saw that to agree with, you know, the pandemic and the mm-hmm. rise of anti-Asian racism during during the time of COVID and people and and the summer of 2020 with George Floyd mm. and people asking those questions of like, how is justice? What is the relationship between justice and the gospel? Right. And, mm-hmm. and so we, so I've been having these conversations for a good number of years. And I think now, particularly in cultural lanes, the, the conversation is how is cross-cultural engagement? How is it on mission? Right. Mm. That's a big one is, mm-hmm. is this in alignment with our mission as an organization or, mm. You know, sometimes people will say, well, I already love God and I already love others. Why do I need to do cultural training? (laughs) You know, or, you know, yeah, let's just focus on the gospel. Mm. Let's just focus on like biblical Mm -hmm. pillars and ideals. Or I think the last big hurdle is people saying, well, cultural training is probably good for missionaries, but I'm not a missionary. Mm. Therefore, I don't need this this type of training. So it's kind of a a spectrum Mm -hmm. (laughs) of objections, Mm -hmm. depending on who you're talking to and what their context is. And I think when it comes to Christians, it's just so important to go straight to scripture instead of Mm. debating and then saying, well, you're wrong. Mm. (laughs) And I don't even just respond to objections with like, well, well, let me point to this passage. I actually like to spend a lot of time just asking mm. open-ended questions. Mm. You know, questions like, "Well, tell me more about that," or "What mm. what made what made you come to that decision?" Or, mm-hmm. or if they feel like they're really hostile, you know, what that clues you into the fact that they've had a negative experience. So, taking that direction, you know, what sort of negative experiences have you had in cross-cultural work or, or mm. racial engagement? Where do you wish the conversation would go? You know, so you start to hear their fears, you start to hear their dreams, and then you come alongside and say, "Well, do you think that if you if there was a theological foundation for this work, that that would actually be able to achieve you know whatever it is that they're actually passionate about?" And then all of a sudden, they're like, "Well, yeah." And the, and the conversation opens up. So I think mm. if we can meet people where they're at first and foremost, really get to the heart of what they're frustrated about or mm. worried about, mm-hmm. and then come in and say, well, here's how the gospel, you know, meets you there. Mm. There is such a wonderful, like positive receptivity to that. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of my encouragement for folks who get you know, on the flip side, I talk to folks all the time. They're like, I'm so frustrated with my colleagues. Like, why are they so culturally unaware? Why don't they right. get it? Why don't why don't they care? And so to, you know, kind of tell them instead of just coming straight in with the mm-hmm. education, you know, when I think the more we can ask those open-ended questions, really get to know people and personalize our approaches to them, mm. you know, doors open up from there. Yeah. I think you're 
giving lots of insights into how your experiences and the lessons you have learned will translate to the classroom as well, right? How to listen to students, how to maybe not directly counter, at least not immediately with contrary evidence, right? Because that's sort of my inclination that if they say, oh, microaggressions are not a big deal, my first inclination is to show them, well, actually, there's all this literature that shows <laughs> that it is a big deal, right? But yes. you're saying that sometimes it's about really trying to get into their internal frame of reference, right? And to empathize and listen to where they might be coming from. Yeah, 100%. I, you know, yeah. people people oftentimes make these like really broad stroke generic mm -hmm. comments that on the surface level feel very problematic right mm -hmm. and you kind yeah. of you mm -hmm. feel like these red flags are going off but like oh no right. <laughs> this person cannot think this way yeah and then you actually get to know them and you realize they had like one really really bad personal experience and mm. now they're just sort of like putting out these broad stroke statements because of that one experience that they had and so mm -hmm. if you can kind of address that mm. their tune changes very quickly and so i think mm. we have to kind of just put that red flag radar off to the mm -hmm. side for a moment and 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 kind of calm down and not panic and not respond from a place of fear mm. ourselves and yeah. and yeah the conversation usually uh, becomes more productive and just to follow up on that michelle have there been times though when conversations were not productive even if you gave it your best effort. And maybe even sometimes, and, and I'm speaking from my experience as an instructor too, sometimes I've had to set some boundaries, right? Draw some relational boundaries with, for example, students because of the continued microaggressions, right? Things that were maybe not healthy in the relationship. And so yeah. to the degree that you feel comfortable, could you share a bit about like maybe an example of where you've had to draw some boundaries? <laughs> Oh, 100%. <laughs> I think the most drastic example yeah. is actually when I used to be a professor and mm. I was teaching a, it was a course that had to do with feminism and mm. revisionist literature and all this sorts of stuff, which was always so fun to teach. Mm. And, but there was one particular male student in the class that just didn't seem to like anything that I said. And I couldn't mm. tell if it was, was it me? Was it me being a, a female professor? Was it was it the content? Was it the the, the mix of cross cultural dynamics and feminist theory? Mm -hmm. Like you know, where, so many things that could have been a trigger. But I remember one time he got so angry that he like charged the front of the classroom. And oh my gosh. <laughs> at that point, I was like, okay, I need to talk right. to my higher ups. And you know, I, the 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 point of being gracious has kind mm -hmm. of hit yeah. its ceiling, and now I need right. to to bring in, you know. HR, <laughs> you know, so oh, obviously you need to like have yeah. consideration for your, for your physical safety, mm -hmm. for your own emotional health and things like that too. I do think, yeah, I, I think that there are some folks that they, they just love the sound of their own voice. And no mm. matter what you say, it's going to kind of fall on deaf ears and they're just going to kind of keep parroting their own thoughts mm. and, and, and getting more and more aggressive as they do. And, and, mm. and for those situations, you know, I just kind of tell myself the point of connection, at least right now for this person is not going to be established. And so I kind of step back in those moments and mm -hmm. I don't even, 
I don't keep weighing in. I just kind of let, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, let the person have their, yeah. have their say and move on. Mm-hmm. But then again, if, if that, if that aggression ramps up, then it's like, okay, we need to, we need to take this outside the classroom. We need to potentially bring in the department head or the mm-hmm. higher up. So I think it's good to know, you know, you're not trying to win every student. You're not trying to have forward moving progress with every conversation. There, there always will be those students or those colleagues where the conversation just hits a point where you're like, at, at least for now, we, we can't continue with this. And that's okay too. Yeah. Giving them space. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's a scary example, Michelle, what you described. <laughs> I've never had anything close to that happen to me. But I also I also think sometimes like the withdrawal from the conversation, like in a classroom where you see students being super passive or maybe even intentionally just psychologically withdrawing from any kind of dialogue, that can also kind of, I guess, suck my energy into trying to get them to re-engage, right? And it's not like someone charging at me, but it does feel like sometimes I have to draw that boundary as well so yeah. that that one student or the couple of students in the classroom are not taking up so much of my psychological energy, right? And so giving them a bit of space, right? And being willing to let them be for a bit, right? So yes. that I can <laughs> uh, take care of the other students as well. Yeah. yeah. And to actually give the majority of your energy to the engaged, enthusiastic, dialed in students, Mm -hmm. uh, because they're the ones that are invested. They're the ones that that actually want to take the work from the classroom into their, (laughs) you know, real lives. And that's what's life giving. And I think Mm -hmm. we've all seen that not only just in the classroom, but I think that translates across the board, pastors with congregations directors with you know teams and staffs that if they end up focusing on that small group of people that are Mm -hmm. the most resistant and the most difficult I mean that's the fast track to burnout right Right. and so we have to keep all of the different dynamics in mind who might be Mm -hmm. struggling who might be kind of falling off the map while still giving that majority energy to the ones that are dialed in so that our work continues to be life-giving and energizing yeah no, I think you make an excellent point that, yeah, it's helpful for our own energy and uh, process as we're teaching, right? That we need also that kind of positive feedback from folks as we're teaching, right? <laughs> yes. And to always go after those few who are kind of resistant can be sucking the energy out of us. So yeah, really appreciate appreciate that perspective. You know, you've already shared some, Michelle, but because you have so much experience in organizational settings and working with leaders, for example, I'm wondering like if there are lessons you have learned, like really critical lessons you have learned in those settings that will also translate well to a higher education classroom, like at a Christian university, yeah. for example. Yeah, well, you know, talking talking with you, talking with uh, other leaders in different uh, fields that are already like dialed into the work of cross-cultural engagement, DEI, like they're already, the passion is already there. Mm-hmm. What I like to tell folks that I work with is that, you know, to really be successful in, in DEI work, to be successful in cross-cultural engagement, there's, there's three pillars that'll set you mm-hmm. up for success. The first is education, the second is experience, and the third is evaluation. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes 
people can be really good at pillar number one and mm. or pillar number two. Right. And I think pr- probably in the, in the higher ed space, pillar mm. number one of education is is thriving, right? Like mm-hmm. we've got the books, we've got the research. We're trying to dial into histories and movements and you know patterns and all of these sorts of things. And I think a lot of professors, particularly in the space, are also dialing into experience. They're trying to ask those questions of how are we empowering students to move from the classroom out into their neighborhoods or communities, meeting real people, doing cross-cultural work. So it's not just theoretical, right? Mm-hmm, and even mm-hmm. I, I love what I'm hearing from, from some teachers and professors about thinking outside the box for assignments, you know, not just writing essays or articles, mm-hmm. but maybe a talking head video of, of their experience, you mm-hmm. know, kind of B-roll footage, you know, whatever it is mm-hmm. that they're doing to, to show what their experience was like in a different cultural environment, what they learned from that. But the third pillar that's really helpful for success is evaluation. And I think a great question for folks in higher ed to be asking is what sort of evaluation tools are you using and implementing when it comes to DEI work? Not just for you, but the students that you're interacting with, your colleagues. And I I don't just simply mean those evaluations at the end of the those course evaluations. I'm talking about cultural assessments, things Mm. like a cultural intelligence assessment, or, you know, maybe you've heard the term IDI or things like that, where you're really getting an idea of your cultural strengths, your areas of growth, if you will, what kind of ongoing development plan is is in place for your classroom, for you as an educator in the space that you work and teach. And so if you only have education and, and experience, you can only go so far. You need all three working together for you to truly have that success that you're looking for. Mm. As you know, in higher ed, we evaluate ourselves to death sometimes, or at least it feels (laughs) like it, but so little of that has to do with cultural intelligence, right? So I think that feeds back into your point that we need more of that. What's encouraging in my department is we started to require faculty to reflect on DEI in their professional development plan. Mm. And that's been I, I think really good in holding faculty accountable and allowing them to grow in that very important area. Traditionally, we've only reflected on our scholarship, teaching and service, but not explicitly like a DEI as a category. But now we're starting to require that. And I think that's been really helpful. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. You know, I, I you know, things like, for example, a cultural mm-hmm. intelligence assessment, I think that would be a wonderful resource for professors, but also like like in the work that you're doing, you're teaching cross-cultural psychology mm-hmm. in courses where DEI is directly integrated. I think mm-hmm. it would be even interesting to have a class of students go through a CQ assessment at the beginning of the course yes. mm-hmm. and, and where they not only get individualized reports of where they're at, but mm-hmm. if you do as a group to get a group report and there's mm-hmm. this immediate baseline understanding of Okay, who's in the class? What cultures right. are being expressed? Yeah. Where are their similarities? Where are their points of difference to be mm-hmm. mindful of in terms of preventing cross-cultural miscommunication or conflict? And then even for professors to have that kind of knowledge to be able to yeah. slightly adapt how mm-hmm. they teach or, or or what they include in their curriculum. 
I, I speak of that outside of academia right now. So, you know, finances and all of that, I don't know how that works, but, you know, I think those are the types of things that would allow professors just to be able to kind of get that edge mm-hmm. in terms of continuing to adapt and focus their, their content to the specific students in right. the, in the seats in their classroom. No, I think that's an excellent point. And maybe even do like a post-class or post-semester or post-quarter assessment and contrast the where the students were at the beginning of the class and then where the students end up after the class. Yes. I think some of us are doing that kind of assessment because individually we want that, but to have a sort of a university-wide effort like that or department-wide effort, I think that would be really worthwhile. Yeah. I do too. <laughs> I think it'd be really cool to to implement yeah. and see how that, yeah, how that Im- improves uh, mm-hmm. understanding. Uh, you know, it's all linked, right? The more mm-hmm. that you can understand the impact that you're having in the classroom, it, it impacts your professional development and curriculum development and all these sorts of things. So, and and you mentioned something that's really important to me, which is not replicating the exact same thing every quarter, but instead getting a sense of where the students are. And to the degree possible, tailoring my teaching to meet those students' needs, right? Because each quarter, the students are going to be very different, right? And so to be able to be flexible in that regard, I think (laughs) is so, so important. And frankly, hard to do given our limited resources. No, it's so true. I mean, you see every semester, it's like a different percentage of male to female students. It's a different percentage breakdown wise in terms of ethnic representation, you know, even generationally a little bit, right? Like (laughs) are these a bunch of incoming freshmen? Are these seniors? I don't know if you can call that generation, but just age gap, if you Mm -hmm. will. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a question that I was constantly asking. And granted, I, I had the benefit of having smaller classrooms when Mm -hmm. I was um, in academia, I was teaching courses that were anywhere from like 15 to 30 students. And so Mm -hmm. I knew my students really well and could could adapt on on some of those more macro levels. Mm -hmm. But I think it's something just for educators to constantly be be thinking about. For sure. Yeah. 15 to 30 sounds like a really good number. (laughs) I mean, at SPU, I also teach smaller classes, but typically my cross-cultural side class is 35 students or Mm. maybe a couple more, like 37. I wish that like sometimes I could teach 15, like going from 35 to 15, feels like a really sweet kind of a reduction in terms of the types of relationships I can have with students and the types of pedagogical tools I can use with students. Yeah, absolutely. And the amount of invested conversation that happens in those (laughs) smaller classrooms too. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Again, if you're comfortable discussing this, Michelle, I, I know that you're open about your ethnicity as an Indian American like you talk about it in your book, for example, and you mentioned it at the beginning of our interview today. How do you bring in your cultures into your DEI work, meaning certainly your ethnicity, but also other aspects of your identities into your DEI work? Yeah, that's a great, 
That's a great question. Yeah, you know, I mentioned I'm bicultural, so my mom is 100% ethnically Indian,、mm. uh, and she's part of the Indian diaspora. So she wasn't、mm. born in India; she was born in Uganda, Africa. And my dad is of German and British descent, so <laughs> you know he's blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and I, and I'm a mix of of both.、Um, I'm married to a second-generation Mexican-American, so we're raising. You know these sort of Caucasian Mexican Indian <laughs> children.、Mm-hmm. Uh, we do ministry in an immigrant context because of the life experiences and 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 my work in grad school. I speak seven languages. We've we've lived in different parts of the world. My、mm-hmm. husband and I lived in Germany for a while. We lived in Scotland for close to three months last year. And you know, just from my life experiences, just from my own family, I think. It was very clear to me from a, a, a fairly young age that the world is really big.、Mm. <laughs> I had a very, and even still now today, I have a very acute understanding of my small place in、mm. a very big world,、mm. and just how many people there are out there who are different from me.、Mm. And I think so often when it comes to American U.S. American conversations on culture and race, we can get so siloed into.、Mm. Thinking about race relations in terms of black people and white people, right? Or talking about oppression, or immigration, or things like that from a from a very localized U.S. American context. And I think just because of my life experiences, when I'm thinking about these issues of diversity and multiculturalism, even topics like oppression and slavery, you know,、mm. my My mom's great great grandparents were were brought as forced laborers、mm. by the British Empire to Uganda to build the railroad、mm. uh, in Uganda and then also in Kenya. So those sorts of global understandings of these issues, I I think, are just it's it's more of what we need in our、mm. conversations today,、mm-hmm. and it's what I try. It's what I try to bring to the table is to affirm、mm. where people are at, but also try to help them. Expand their thinking beyond just their own localized experience or、mm. their culture's localized experiences to think. Okay, how do you now? How can you understand yourself in relationship to other people? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think that's a lot of the work that I do is just trying to expand <laughs> the conversations.、Mm-hmm. But yeah, and I I I think I'll just I'll just say that. But I think the more that we can focus on expanding conversations, and in particular. Preventing any sort of competition,、mm-hmm. competition of suffering, competition of hurt or grief, and understanding that we, all of our histories have pain and suffering in very different ways,、mm. and that we need to make space for all of that at the table.、Right. I just think the more productive our efforts will be. That's really well put. The idea that we're not competing for resources, right, but rather that. We can make space at the table for all voices, right? That,、yeah. like, I've heard people use the term like oppression Olympics. It's not a competition. It's not Olympics of who, like, it doesn't take away from other people's oppression to talk about our group's oppression, right? Our、yeah. experiences of oppression. So, yeah. And then your your emphasis on global perspective is so appreciated as well. I don't know if I shared at any point, but. I grew up in the Philippines as a missionary kid, so、mm. I, of course, then appreciate the missionary training that you're doing because I think that's a really needed area. And just because you become a missionary doesn't mean that you are prepared cross-culturally, right? So you、yes. need the kind of training that you're providing. But I 
have all these complicated identities that on the surface people might not recognize, right? But to be able to bring all of that into my work is something that I'm trying to do, right? That mm. as a Korean who grew up in the Philippines, attending a almost all white school for the majority of my life, right? And mm. in a very evangelical setting. And then coming to the U.S. as an international student, but now as a naturalized U.S. citizen, all of that, I, I hope, can be helpful in the DEI work that I do. Right? And I'm trying to bring all of that in. Yeah. Amen. Amen. And I think I think I love that. And I love getting to know more of your story. And I think mm-hmm. something that I say that in my book, and I think mm-hmm. this is true for all people, because I'm Indian American, I say mm-hmm. I am like all Indians, I am like some Indians, and I'm like no other Indian. Mm-hmm. You know, the same is true with your mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so important for us to know what what histories we're living into, right. <laughs> you know, what stories we're living into, but also yeah. the fact that we are making a unique contribution into those stories mm-hmm. and to, to, to hold both, you know, one in each hand. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's an interesting time to be an Asian American Christian in the U S mm. I think one, because there's a lot of research and reports coming out about how Asian American Christians are one of the fastest demographics to be leaving the church so they're becoming unchurched so there's kind of this (laughs) there's like this issue within asian american christianity of (laughs) of okay how do we care for this demographic but then of Mm -hmm. course within the larger conversation in in sort of u.s racial histories and cross-cultural engagement oftentimes asian americans are Mm -hmm. overlooked and then there's the the side part of, you know, where do Indians, where do South Asians fit into this? And I remember growing up and even in my twenties, people, people wouldn't know what to call me. They're Mm. like, are you Asian ish? Mm. (laughs) So I was like, yeah, what am I? Am I Indian? Yeah. I'm Mm. Indian. Am I South Asian, Desi, Asian American? I, I think these terms are all very helpful. They all express different identifications and proximity to other groups, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's really important to understand is when we call ourselves Asian American or we call ourselves South Asian or whatnot, we're expressing a certain proximity, the people that we have affinity with. You know, my mom, for example, she's first generation Indian American. She is Indian, not Asian. And she's very like mm-hmm. adamant about that. You know, mm-hmm. she's like, I don't want to be called Asian because I'm Indian. And mm-hmm. and there are first generation dynamics at play there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that sort of association with her cultural group over mm-hmm. US American nationality, like all of that is at play. But for me, I'm okay utilizing a term like Asian American because of its political origins and its it's affirmation of proximity to other Asian demographics as a form of, of racial solidarity, of like showing up for each other, particularly in terms of distress and crisis. There's no one size fits all mm-hmm. identification for folks within the Asian American, mm-hmm. South Asian, Indian <laughs> demographic. Yeah. But I think that's an important conversation to have. I think it's an important conversation to figure out how to help Asian Immigrant churches thrive because there's a lot of disconnects happening between first, second, and third generation. And so uh, there's just, there's a lot of need right Mm -hmm. now and a lot of opportunities to weigh in and and, and care. For sure. No, this is really great that you're speaking (laughs) into this and you're highlighting the tension that I see in my communities, which is 
on one hand, this need for a pan-Asian ethnicity and the solidarity with one another, right? And how uh, even from the perspective of the Asian American community is viewed as Asian by others outside of it, the Asian American community, right? So there is this strong identity that we're part of this Asian group, but also on the other hand, it's a very diverse group, right? And we shouldn't homogenize the experiences of Asian Americans, right? And that yeah. there are unique challenges within the Asian community when you disaggregate that data, whether it's I don't know, educationally, in terms of socioeconomic status, mental health concerns, there are all these unique challenges that come up within Asian communities that we need to recognize. So yeah. I appreciate your sort of nuanced perspective. And, and I'll, I'll add yeah. this real quickly, mm -hmm. because I'm second generation, yeah. I just feel like when I was in my early 20s, I felt the way that a lot of vocal second gen immigrant children are about being mm. frustrated with your parents and why were they not more active and all these communication and identification disconnects and really just placing a lot of the blame on my parents. And I felt like the, the older I got, the mm. more I did my own sort of cultural identity development work, the more I weighed into issues of race and culture having children, like all of these things, I I have felt like over time, I have learned to be far more compassionate and understanding mm -hmm. with my parents, with my mom, with the mm -hmm. way that she views the world. And so I do feel like I, I feel very passionate about wanting in particular to help second gen immigrant children mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. myself to, to consider staying at the table not mm -hmm. just leaving you know how do we make this work how do we yeah give tools for first gen to better communicate across generational divides to become right. perhaps more flexible to cultural dynamics that are at, at work here within the U.S. American context and at the same time help keep second gen at the table so that's I think a lot of the sort of behind the scenes conversations that I'm having right now. Mm. Such important work. Yeah, I, I like the idea that it's not just about teaching older folks or the older generation to acquire, I guess, more cultural flexibility, but it's also about the other side, right? The younger folks yeah. learning to relate to the older generation. So yes, really appreciate with greater that understanding and compassion. Yes. Yeah, compassion and just realizing that, hey, our parents and our grandparents they did the best they could, right? With the knowledge they had, the experiences that they had. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I have two questions that, that I'll ask all guests. So I'll try to get to them quickly. My first question is, what advice might you have for Christian educators, such as PhDs, who are just beginning their careers? Those who are just starting out their teaching and researching careers. Yeah, well, I'll share the best advice that I received when I was mm. first starting out. and <laughs> It was this aim for 100 rejections a year. And wow. the idea is that you're constantly putting yourself out there, whether that's mm. job applications or places to write or publish or research or, you know, fill in the blank, but just try mm. things, be open to anything. I think so oftentimes we can create these almost like lists in our head of we only want to publish with these journals, or we mm. only want to speak at these conferences, or we only want to be known for you know, these topics or interests or, you know, whatnot, but you don't even know what possibilities are out there. If you 
limit yourself up front and just mm-hmm. say, no, these are the only, you know, three things I'm going mm-hmm. to do. And, and, and that was really good advice for me because when I started out, I just cast the net really wide mm-hmm. and I found myself attending conferences that even some of my colleagues were like, why would you speak at that conference? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like It doesn't have the prestige or it doesn't have uh, the, you know, fill in the blank. And mm-hmm. I just, I just found that wherever I went, I was always building relationships. I was always building networks, making new friends. Mm. And and even now, some of those networks that I built early on, some of those places that kind of gave me my first start mm-hmm. and, and, and and I collaborated with, they've, they've played a huge role in my professional mm. path in ways mm-hmm. that I would have never even imagined had I just outright said no. So mm-hmm. aim for 100 rejections a year. Just put yourself out there, see which doors God opens. Wow. Thank you for that challenge, right? I'll, I'll jot that down. Aim for 100. That, <laughs> that's scary, but also really good for me to hear. And my last question is, because you and actually, I don't know who this person will be either. So if you could ask mm-hmm. my next guest any question about teaching of DEI topics, it can be a fun one. It can be a really difficult question because you don't have to answer it. Yeah. What might it be? <laughs> what might be a question that I can throw at the next guest? That's a fan, that's a fantastic <laughs> question. I think one of the things that's always circulating in my mind mm-hmm. is how do you get folks to excitedly volunteer mm-hmm. for DEI work? Mm-hmm. And you know, we've all seen the data that mandated trainings, you know, being voluntold yeah. <laughs> to show up and engage with certain new procedures or policies, it just doesn't work. You know, right. you're not going to see that transformational lifestyle change, people are going to be doing it just as a checkbox and move on with their life. And so the key to like transformative, Mm -hmm. life-changing DEI work is to get people to want to show up, Mm -hmm. to want to do the work because they see the benefits, because they're motivated. That's when the magic happens. That's when you see organizations begin to change from the ground up. So the question remains, how do we get people to excitedly volunteer yeah. and show up for DEI work. So <laughs> Please leave that to check. your next guest and I'll listen yeah. to the podcast episode to <laughs> hear but the you, answer. Please <laughs> let me know as well, because that seems like a million dollar question. Yeah. It's really hard to find people to volunteer for anything, um, especially when it comes to something like DEI work. So yeah, great yeah. question. Michelle, uh, it's been amazing. Do you have anything uh, else you'd like to say before we stop the conversation? Well, one, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for this conversation. I hope that it is encouraging for your listeners. And yeah, for anybody who perhaps is listening in and is interested in learning more about taking a cultural intelligence assessment, learning more about their own cultural awareness, cultural strengths, cultural weaknesses, wanting to grow in these areas, feel free to reach out. You know, my my email is michelle at successculture.net and be happy to even just hop on like a free strategy session call and learn more about your goals, how CQ could, could serve you in your context. Thank you for listening to the Cross-Cultural Psych Podcast with Dr. Paul Youngman Kim. We hope this content was meaningful. If you enjoyed the podcast, we invite you to write a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Also, let us know what you'd like to see covered in future episodes. We hope you will join us next time.